Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. This is another in our extra series of COVID-19 special short podcasts. Uh, as usual, the audio quality won't be quite up to our uh, good standard, but I hope the ideas will more than make up for it. Uh, today's guest is Benita Roy, one of the most interesting and innovative thinkers, writers, talkers, and doers uh, on the planet today. She's been on our show before. Uh, she's been a longtime collaborator of mine. We don't always agree, but that's okay. Uh, I have tremendous respect for where she's coming from. Uh, the, the reason I invited her on the show is more than anybody else I know, she has been focusing on the possibilities on the other side of this crisis. And I've just loved a tremendous amount of what she's written. And uh, one thing she wrote, I think yesterday, day before, really struck me and I think sets the tone for uh, how I'd like our little uh, brief discussion to go. Let me read this. This is from Bonita. Crises push people in one direction or the other. So we need to help each other move from contraction, cognitive shutdown, and moral dread to expansion, collective insight, and moral courage by staying together in deeper communion. In Parliament with the Trouble, we can disclose this moment as screaming with possibilities. I just love that. So, Benita, what are the possibilities? Oh, wow. So, uh, you know, from my vantage point, screaming with possibilities, there's, there's just so many uh, in terms of a wider breadth, a quantity in the, in the depths of them. Let me just uh, step back and, uh, and, and talk about what I was feeling when I wrote that. Um, um, this notion of staying together in parliament with the trouble what I'm referring to is that there are many different interpretations of what's going on. There's many people are even updating their interpretations as we go along. There's lots of um, conversations uh, displayed in many different ways. Um, and what I want to suggest is that um, yes, at one level we have those conversations, but at the other level to expand our perspective and see that all of these conversations are part of the same movement. Uh, I wrote once, whether you believe uh, in coronavirus or not, uh, whether you believe it from a biological or epidemiological standpoint or whether you think it's some, I mean there are radical conspiracy theories out there, what we can do is stay with what is actually happening, right? The difference between your interpretation of what is happening and what is actually happening. I mean, there's a lot going on. And that's what I mean by staying with the trouble, staying with um, how things are changing for you, staying with how today was different than three weeks ago, staying with the choices that you're making today, um, um, staying with kind of this 
um, overwhelm of information. We really don't know. Uh, we don't have an exact grasp on the statistics or the direction of what's happening. Um, can we can we stay in this open space of possibility and see it for um, the possibilities that are arising? So this notion of staying with the trouble means a, is the first an invitation to let go of your single interpretation and just kind of like you know keep advocating for that and get back to this like the human condition of okay what's our new human condition many of us are at home some of us are uh, rejecting the at-homeness and actually uh, you know being deviant having deviant behavior so whatever behaviors that you've adopted to see that they are part of the same a particular situation in this time, right? So trying to just expand ourselves out to uh, that viewpoint, I think, is a very valuable first for first step. Um, and then in terms of the possibilities, just um, really be uh, perceptive and aware and observant and sensitive to how things change and what difference it makes. I was talking to a high, uh, high school student in, in Washington, D.C. yesterday about this. It was very, very fascinating, their comments. So, you know, if you're not going to work every day, you know, this habits we get in. We get our coffee, we get on the bus or the subway, we go to work, we do the same things, you know, the whole nine to five. If you're not doing that, then pay attention to how your life has changed. Pay attention to maybe you may be bored or anxious, or um, looking at why do I why have I been mindlessly going to work? You may find yourself looking across the table at your children, playing in the corner or fighting with each other, and ask yourself, what do they actually do all day when I'm not here or when they're in school and 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 what are the sweet moments and what are not the sweet no moments when when we get you know we've been forcefully removed from our habits so we have an opportunity to look at things from this new vantage point and they may seem strange like it's like it's strange that uh, people live in you know one of the things the students were saying it's strange being in a house um, because I'm in my room and we you know we separate ourselves everyone stays in their own room and they thought well that's kind of strange why why do we lock ourselves in into, into our own room and so these these kind of noticings can really start to generate uh, curiosity and inquiry into your own human condition not only in terms of you as an individual but you in your community uh, and in larger, you know, social systems like the economic and the supply chain and all of this. So, the first invitation is to um, not just um, get bored, or not just be anxious, or not just be argumentative about what is happening, but take advantage of the fact that you have a new vantage point. Can we? Can you be sensitive to and observe from this new place and see something for the first time? It reminds me of when I went to college. You know, I was very parochial and I never even had a sleepover with a friend when I was a kid. And then I went away to college, and when I came back for Thanksgiving, I had a new vantage point to look at my family dynamics. You know, and I was like, "Wow, that's how we are." So. 
this, op this by itself opens a space of possibility. So that's what I mean by staying in parliament with the trouble. A parliament is called, uh, uh, traditionally, um, the origins of the word is a parliament is called on a temporary basis so people can get together and reflect and review on the situation that they face. Um, yeah, I like that very much. I mean, uh, to my perspective, uh, you know, my interpretation of where you're coming from is that uh, if we hang with our experiences and, and take our experiences at this time seriously, it's going to give us a quite different perspective than the everyday where, you know, for so many Americans, they're sort of numbed with uh, routine activity, you know, get up at six o'clock in the morning, you know, do your morning uh, cleanings and, and beautifying, rush off to work, right? Uh, you know, stop and pick up some pre-made gloppy food from the grocery store on the way home, you know, have a, uh, you know, have a dinner, help the kids with their home work, watch the idiot TV, watch, uh, fall into bed exhausted at 1030. Uh, this is a very different rhythm and we'll see and we'll feel, feel emotion ourselves and if we open ourselves up to that experience, we'll have parallax on the life we used to live, uh, which exactly. we very seldom have. Yeah, so, and, and, and I think pointing that out when I, you know, like I said, supporting people in that they can move toward this more expansive, curious um, uh, perspective, I think we have to help each other with that because it's not always obvious, you know, because it is a big change and we do get sucked into the, to the social media and, and the updates and stuff like that, so... Um, yeah, helping each other to have collective insight and moral courage. So moral courage, I think, is important because when we're shaken from our habits, this this really uh, disrupts the 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 organism. You think the psyche, um, and and people can be surprised that that happens. It, it, it's surprising to some people how much the disruption of their routine. Um, makes a difference. Even if you're sitting at home and, and, and you look around and your children are safe and your family members are safe and you go to the store and yeah, you don't have all the choice maybe that you used to, but you have food. So if you think of the facts of the matter, then they seem to be really okay. And you might l laugh at the fact of how spoiled you were that, um, you know, there's not so many varieties of the certain pasta that you like or something. But when you notice that you're surprised or you, if you notice, wow, there's only t these two types of pasta and you notice what you, the, the feeling you get from that, the, this is an important thing because you haven't noticed maybe the abundance or the overabundance or the marketing or, or you know, when, when people come from other countries to the U.S., a lot of times they're just surprised at what our grocery stores look like, but we can't actually see it anymore, right? We can't actually see what is the case because it's always the same. So give ourselves an opportunity to use the difference to be able to reflect on what was before and ask yourself, you know, why should it be like before? Um, um, is there some advantage point in um, turning the tide in some respects? Um, um, 
you know, one of the things that people have trouble with um, just in general is spaciousness. You know, they're bored at home. They don't know what to do with themselves. Other people have started to really take up, um, you know, things that they've always wanted to do. And maybe they were just um, simple things. I, I read an article the other day, and I'm doing the same thing. A lot of people are making bread and sewing, you know, these kind of ancient, archaic ways of hearth and home. They, they, they emerge in our, in our being because this, this is fundamentally uh, what we are as humans before we step into like you know the rat race and all these manufactured systems we can attune to our uh, or pay attention to the how these more fundamental hearth and home kind of instincts arise this is happening for a lot of people and not to trivialize it not to just have oh, making bread or something like that but to notice how it feels and what that how that experience arises innately um, so those are some some of the what I would say you, you know if you start noticing them it's like the world is screaming with new possibilities and where are the potentials in that? Yeah, I love it. That's great. I, you know, interesting. You mentioned bread. Who you know usually makes uh, some nice homemade bread once every couple of weeks. Uh, her and my daughter, uh, who are all, all together, our family and her husband, and uh, we've been making bread continuously. You know, rustic loaf pita bread. Uh, you know, uh, fine finer uh you know white bread occasionally and it's been quite interesting in fact we joke ah this is the best catered apocalypse ever because uh, yeah. we spend a lot of time now taking care of each other taking care of our food our, our you know our ceremonial conviviality uh and all that in a way that's richer uh than when we're all dashing about on our separate uh, overloaded days. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. You also mentioned the store shelves, and you know this has been been one of my pet peeves since 1994 when I saw the light and kind of converted from a pure game A player to something else. Is uh, I one time went into our local uh, CVS pharmacy and counted 200 varieties of shampoo. You know, does the world really need 200 varieties of shampoo? Right. I don't think so. And, uh, you know, another time, another time I count, I, at our local Martin's grocery store, I counted 77 varieties of barbecue sauce. What the hell, right? Uh, I wonder if this uh, enforced simplification of our lives will open the, the, the minds of at least some people to say, you know, there's something nutty and out of control about the hyperabundance that the money on money return machine drives ourselves to every niche, expl ex you know, subdivided and subdivided and subdivided again until the last nickel is extracted from the, from the pockets of the consumer. Maybe, just maybe, one of the possibilities on the other side is experiencing something different for an extended period of time, four, six, eight, 12 weeks, whatever it turns out to be people maybe start to be uh, less programmed to the consumer consumerist money on money machine thing at least uh, at least that's one of my hopes yeah we i mean we're hooked on the trivial uh, desires and the trivial pursuits in life and disconnected from um, being resourceful and 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 the true meaning making um, practices of human community and family and but you know I've been writing this um, essay uh, um, for that's going to come out and emerge and the, the question I have you know I had to ask myself a question but why is it for example that it's not why is it 
that we will tend to just go back to the rat race. Uh, this was very interesting to me. I, I was on some calls with people, and people like you and me and other people I know who are resourceful, um, have pantries filled with natural health care and know how to take care of, I mean, I have animals, so we do a lot of, like, you know, basically, you know, small level surgery and injections on the farm. And, you know, there's a certain resourcefulness. People like us are not as affected by the, the situation than people who are in uh, this, you know, in the system, in the global economy, let's say. And the question is, why is it that um, the rat, going back to the rat race is so uh, tempting? You know, why is it that people just without encouragement or without some of these podcasts like you're doing, why, why isn't it just obvious to them that they should turn the tide? And one of the things that I realized, um, and it was from reading an article by Simone Mayer, it was an uh, uh, mag online magazine called The Conversation, is that for most people, for many people, there's not the option between the rat race and this home and hearth kind of thing we're talking about, but it's the rat between the rat race and a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And this has to do with, um, you brought up this notion of the, you know, the extractive economy. And what it is, is it, it, in this article, it made me realize that the Simon Mayer calls it barbarism, but that um, if you have a, a centralized economy um, and uh, you can, you, you end up inviting people to the rat race, right? So this kind of like uh, extractive economy. But if that same economy becomes distributed, you have a dog-eat-dog -dog world because the economy is not set up to serve people. It's set up for to extract value from exchange, right? And so this is actually a smart choice that people are making because they intuitively sense that their options are between the rat race and the dog-eat-dog -dog world. So it's not just about expanding our imagination from a centralized to a distributed economy. We have to change the function of the economy to serve the needs and protection of life and people. And I thought this was a big insight that I had. And, it, and because I'm always kind of um, skeptical of thinking that people are not making the correct choices. And they seem like they're making uh, the wrong choices, but I really truly believe now that this is kind of the pickle that most people are in. It's between going back to the rat race or what they see is if all of a sudden the economy as we know it gets distributed, it will be a dog-eat-dog -dog world because it's primarily rivalrous. We understand economies and currencies as rivalrous. We see them as extractive and of, of value. So we need to reimagine the economy as servicing the needs of people. And in my article I'm writing about, for example, if the food supply chain breaks down. Let's say, you know, the people don't have enough money to buy food, the truckers don't get paid to truck it, the migrant workers all go home, right? Well, it's not like the earth stopped producing food. It's not like the sun stopped growing the, the food. It's not like 
um, any of the, you know, it's not like the sun started defying the laws of physics. None of that has changed. It's just that the mechanism of extractive value exchange is broken down. So what prevents us from planting the seeds and harvesting the food and getting in our trucks and, and distributing, what prevents us from just continuing, right? And so it, it's not very, it's not a real far distance between doing it the way we do now and just continuing. And in fact, you see the uh, government is going to try to inject money into the system, so it'll continue to do that. But why do we need that step? Why can't we define, de uh, design, for example, essential goods and services to work on a currency system that is designed to protect the, the flow of essential goods and services to people, including healthcare. And then once you do that, if you take that currency off of the market, then you can distribute it. Then people will move toward it because now it's no longer being, um, being an, an, a, a local kind of community inside an extractive currency. It, now you can truly move from the rat race to the to the community, so this I thought was a big um, a big uh, knowing or something that um, really um, made a big difference in the way that I understood um, why it is that people go back to the rat race. So um, yeah, so that's one thing, and and another thing that was a big insight for me, you know, just kind of uh, modeling what you can learn if you pay attention is that a lot of people are saying, oh, this crisis is showing us that we're, how interconnected we are. But I think I would I'd like to caution people. Um, I think it's very important that um, you're not experiencing interconnectedness because the system is breaking down. All you're experiencing is that you depend upon the system. And th there's a big difference there. And in fact, the reason why the the food supply or the is fragile is because you're connected to your food supply by the system so this is not a uh, example of deep interconnection it's an example of unilateral dependency on a system that's not um, uh, that has asynchronous power to you so if we were really interested in deeper connection and and I think people when they get ahead of that they really yearn for that then for example we would be able to feed our neighbors and go to the store and 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 have this kind of more generosity this flow of goods essential goods and services from person to person without it having to be controlled centralized and have the value extracted by by um, the system so um, and and we see this everywhere I mean why my mother has uh, compromised lungs every year she gets pneumonia um, we we wanted to buy um, at home oxygen a respirator 
We asked, you know, you can't have one without a prescription. We asked her doctor that she's known for years to write her a prescription. And he can't unless he can, you know, has a medical record that she has pneumonia. So these are, this is the way the system creates a false asynchronous power relationship. People can learn how to um, do many of this stuff at home and then you'll truly be interconnected because you have resources that your neighbors you can share with your neighbors and you can receive from your neighbors also and we probably given the complexity of our lives need some kind of currency for that but that can be certainly um, off the Wall Street off the financial instruments and <clears throat> be not part of a debt economy and an extractive value exchange. So I think we're really close to these things. Um, I'm, I'm writing this article. It has 10, it's like a countdown to what I call Regenesis, has 10 interrelated uh, uh, principles that, that many of us have already worked out. I'm not a, a financial expert, but I know that these things are understood by people today, people like yourselves, people in our community. All these 10 areas are well-researched and can be handled by a community of people who've been working on them in a long time, and they support each other. So uh, number two helps number three, and number three helps number five get done. And, and, and so what I'm hoping is this, great, this notion of screaming with possibility is that this is this is a moment in time where uh, people that are leading these kinds of changes can be upregulated as leaders in our in our society. That they can convene uh, community, larger communities of practices, and that people can see that it's a safe bet to move toward a world that is that is better f for all of us and, and I really feel the possibility in that and um, yeah and, and and I'm trying as best as I can to contribute uh, to well, making that, that great. happen. Yeah well I really much look forward where are you going to publish that in Emerge did you say? Yeah. Look, look forward to reading it. Uh, let me give you a couple uh, responses uh, reactions there. I like the distinction actually very useful it's opening my mind a little bit because uh, we do our our money economy is extraordinarily interwoven at very long distances mm -hmm. uh, and driven by again the economics of money on money return the example I give is and if it turns out you that uh, you know Walmart can get a t-shirt for five cents less that's made in Bangladesh by semi-slave labor than made in a uh, uh, a good job, a good wage-paying job in South Carolina. The money on money return signal says do it, even though it devastates the town in South Carolina and empowers uh, kind of uh, capitalist exploiters in Bangladesh. Uh, and why should the why should cotton go from Texas to uh, Bangladesh and back again? You know, burning fossil fuels all the while uh, because it's the reason is the driver is our money on money return. Anyway, this the economy is this unbelievably complicated network of very long distance uh, exchanges aimed at uh, you know, financial optimization. In fact, I sometimes say, people say the internet was the greatest invention of the 20th century. Maybe it was the shipping container uh, that cut the cost of mm -hmm. uh, long distance, uh, you know, transcontinental, uh, intercontinental uh, commerce by a factor of uh, five, cheaper than it used to be. 
but then so we put that in one bag this this monster string network beast optimized of huge complexity in optimized in money terms but not optimized in terms of what's good for communities and for the world and on the other side as you point out and this is something i had not thought of quite in these ways before uh, our relationship with that beast is a peculiar one right it's not a rich relationship it's not mm -hmm. a strong link really do we have any emotional affinity to the shit we buy at Walmart. I don't, right? Uh, and we just take it as a given. There's no human humanness to it. There's no deep reciprocity. I don't expect Walmart to help me out when I'm out of work. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if I'm trading locally with people I know and I'm out of work, you know, frankly, it's per very reasonable for them to continue to front me eggs and milk for a few months, right? Exactly. And I'll help them by chopping their firewood this winter. Uh, and I, I do think this is the biggest possibility. And, and unfortunately, the alternative really isn't ready. I wish it was. I wish we were further along in building what we sometimes call the game B world, uh, where things are much more local, more modular, uh, more peer-to-peer, -peer, more self-organizing, more network-centric. Uh, but but we're not. We're we're building some of the ideas and a very few of the tools. Uh, but I do think that this uh, possibility has opened a bunch of eyes. Right for the first time in a long time, people are having to make consequential decisions for themselves, and maybe ten times as many people are now ready to hear the message and start getting to work. Uh, to build out this alternative world that you alluded to with a, uh, you know, a financial signaling mechanism that builds community not optimized for economic uh, short-term uh, return. And, you know, I'm really hoping that uh, the number of ears that hear has grown by a factor of 10 at least due to this uh, process so that we can start the real work of being ready for the next one. Because uh, I think those of us who follow this stuff closely know this is not the last big shock to the status quo. Far from it. In fact, as apocalypses go, uh, this one's pretty benign. Uh, as far as I can tell, uh, we, should, we should not expect basic infrastructure to stop working like electricity and water and sewage and probably not food. We, you know, we may get... Uh, a further simplification in our food chain, but at least in the United States, I see no reason that the grocery stores won't stay open. But the next one could be a lot worse. And I think the you know, message I'd like to get out to the world, it's really time to get serious about building this alternative, building this game B, uh, so that when the next one occurs, there really will be a place to go to away from the rat race and to build uh, this closer to the earth, closer to our neighbors, strong links, reciprocity-based uh, uh, civilization that isn't uh, driven by, can I squeeze the last nickel out of every dollar? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that um, from two different perspectives. One is, I think we're a long way from the whole kit and caboodle to change. But I think that um, if we change our design approach, I see that this is much more doable if we move to parallel systems. You know, so if we take essential goods and services off of the main currency, I don't see that as being a big deal. I, I and, and actually, I mean, we don't want to get into the details here because I actually also disagree that the only thing that's driving these incredibly complex supply chains are efficiencies. Um, I think the efficiencies are manufactured, uh, uh, the, the, the drive to efficiencies are manufactured by um, 
the structure of the financial system itself. And so, yes, if you're running a co company, you're, you're forced to enter this game of efficiency, but that's because the subsidies in the larger financial system uh, um, make these long supply chains more efficient than short supply chains. It's a manufactured uh, uh, imperative uh, for efficiency at the corporate level. This is this is another big thing that I think it, uh, insight that people need to know. So, um, um, and the reason why that is that the financial system is structured that way is because if you're you're growing chickens in the U.S. and you're shipping them to China and then they're coming back. What happens is the financial global financial system, you know, GDP in the U.S. is something like 30% of just finance on finance now. And it's because the more transactions that happen, the longer and more complex the supply chain, the more uh, points at which you can extract value. So the system needs these long, convoluted, complex supply chains in order to extract value. So they subsidize, um, the system subsidizes movements in such a way so there are more, more uh, changes of hand to get the chicken back to your plate. And then those subsidies make it look like it's more efficient to do that, but that's because it's a structured inefficiency. This is what I truly believe. I think that um, it's a big part of how we get from here to there faster. I think that the, the illusion that long supply chains are more efficient, that we actually pull that off, is a big illusion that has got us stuck. And I'd love to yep. talk to you about that someday. Yep, and I, 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 that's a great distinction because it is efficient in the measure of money on money return. Exactly. Uh, but, but only in that dimension. And, and as this whole thing is showing us, it's uh, efficiency that's traded off against resiliency and robustness. Uh, there's, no, there's nothing in the money on money return that says we should have had a 20 billion face mask uh, supply uh, for uh, the inevitable uh, pandemic. Right. Uh, the, the efficient uh, supply chains of Johnson & Johnson do not send that signal, right? Exactly. Somebody else, some social system has to send that signal. Exactly. And that's where we're broken. Well, uh, Bonita, I, th we've kind of re I think let's leave it at that. That's probably we the number a, one take. We did a lot. We, all, we did a lot. Uh, this has been a wonderful. This was every bit as good as I thought. And I had high expectations, as I always do when I interact with Benito, one of the smartest, uh, saviest, biggest, hardest people I know. So thank you for being on the show. One day we'll meet Jim and we'll give us each other a good post-coronavirus hug. Well, very good. Thank okay, you thank again. You so much. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.